Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. So let's get started then. 1 Timothy 2, verse 1. Therefore, I exhort, all, uh, I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. Uh, prayer is the first thing that comes to Paul's mind. Um, in the last chapter, we, uh, we got to deal with false teachers a little bit and what that looks like um, and how to handle it in the church. Um, Paul goes over that kind of in detail. You are welcome to look up the uh, recording. I was informed one was made uh, for those of you who are interested. Uh, but coming off of that, um, Paul goes straight to prayer. Um, when we encounter false teaching in the church, we do have to address that and deal with that. Um, sometimes even if, if brothers fall away or are falling away, uh, the best thing that we can do um, for them and for the church is to be in prayer. So really, we're, we're going to talk about prayer list and how to pray and what that looks like this morning. Um, we need the words, of course, to pray for people. Uh, we need the right words, and, and the best way to get those is, is from God. We pray also because we can't change people's hearts. Only God can do that. We also pray um, because we need to thank God for things. Um, personally, I don't do a very good job of this. Um, when I pray, it, it's usually because I have something that I need. It's, oh, God, help me get through this. I would like to not screw this teaching up too badly. So, but when the teaching is done, then the flip side is, of course, I should go to God and say, God, thank you for getting me through that. Thank you that nobody threw anything at me. It was lovely. Um, everything that we go through is for our benefit, um, including teaching sermons on a Sunday morning when we're not the most com confident or comfortable doing so. And uh, when we have something like that happen, we should make sure that we, we thank God. Therefore, I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority. Uh, when we pray, we should be praying for everyone, not just specifically people that we like. Everybody needs prayer. Um, that goes for everybody in this room, including you, Tom. Don't think you don't. It's pretty easy to pray for people that we know and like, um, and the, there are a few things that we should be praying about for them, of course. We should be praying just generally that they grow closer to God, um, that that's uh, a continuing thing in their life, and that, that's just a general prayer for them growing closer to God. We should also be praying for specific things in their life. If they have something that they need or that comes up, we should be praying for that. And last but not least, don't forget that we should be thanking God. Thank them. Thank God for what kind of a wonderful friend they are and what a blessing they are in your life. When we're thoughtful in praying for other people, it is honoring to God. God asks it of us. We should be doing it. And when we do it, it is, um, it is an honor to our, our maker and our God. We should be praying for those around us, that they can receive understanding of who God is. We should be praying that they receive uh, openings and opportunities to serve and to minister, to bless other people, um, that they can uh, find openings to build relationships, that we can find openings to build relationships with them. And ultimately, we should also be praying that they find opportunities to share the gospel and the good news of, of Christ with other people. 
Now going back to verse 2, we can see that we are to pray for kings and all who are in authority. We should be praying for our politicians. We should be praying for the leadership in our country. Uh, they need prayers because they make the laws that govern our country. We should be praying for them that they can make good and godly laws, um, that they don't make laws that are horribly out of left field or that um, would harm the name of God. That's something that we can influence in a way um, by prayer by prayer and through prayer. We're also blessed in our country that we can influence that in other ways, which I think I'll come back to later on. Our politicians also need prayer because they're on the front line. No matter what they do, they're going to make somebody mad. So pray for them. Pray that they can get through that. Pray that they can make the right people mad, maybe. That might, might be a good thing. Um, our country is in turmoil right now. It's not a, a good time for us. There's a lot of things going on, no matter what side of the political spectrum you fall on, um, that just aren't going your way. Um, pray that our leadership can figure that out and sort through that quandary, that they would be able to do so in a way that is beneficial to our country as a whole. There are other authority figures in our country too. We have cops, we have firefighters, EMTs. Um, we need to be praying for those people as well. Especially right now in, in United States culture, cops have come under attacks, um, and that's not a good thing. Um, we should be praying for them, that um, they can keep their temper in all situations, that they can avoid temptations that would um, throw doubt on what the work that they do, uh, and that their purpose would not be in question or, or under, under doubt or critique. Pray for your boss. When's the last time you've done that? Uh, I do it every once in a while. Mine's kind of crazy. We are blessed that we chose those in authority. We get to vote. And in America, that's our responsibility, and it's our blessing. We get to vote for the best candidate, yes, and that's a good thing. We also have the opportunity to vote for the most godly, the one that's going to not only make good laws for us, but that can also promote godliness and goodness and nobility in our country. Regardless of whatever happens in the outcome of that vote, sometimes it does not go our way, shocker, Regardless of the outcome of that, we need to be praying for the hearts of our leadership, that they would that they would come to faith if they don't already have that, um, and that what would be in their hearts would be um, a blessing and honorable for our country moving forward. There are people in our lives that we think are hopeless, the unbelievers in our lives, the people we don't think are ever going to come to faith, the people that we don't think are ever going to be able to turn their lives around. Uh, those people need our prayers too. Uh, the unbeliever cannot appeal to God in the same way that we can because they don't have access to his throne. So we are the intercessor to some degree in their life. Um, we need to be appealing to God for their hearts. Um, that's something that they can't really do themselves um, because they don't have access to God like that. We do. So we need to be praying for their hearts. We need to be praying that God can change them and bring them into an understanding of who he is that we may lead quiet and peaceable lives in all godliness and reverence. We pray so that we can live quiet lives, peaceable lives. Uh, quiet in the Strongs means uh, quiet or tranquil. And peaceable, um, initially I read it and it looked like it said the exact same thing, so I, I dug a little bit further. And to be peaceable is to be undisturbed or still. The idea is, would be like if you're sitting in a seat and you're just sitting there not doing much of anything. You're sitting peaceably in your seat. Through Christ, through prayer, we have peace and stillness in our lives. Um, many people get worked up, especially around politics. I think that's a good one. 
um, or other world events that happened. But as Christians, we are blessed in that we don't need to get worked up about that. We can live quiet and peaceable lives through prayer. We hand it over to God and forget about it. Uh, we've been studying uh, kings in our in our morning or our evening study, and uh, Hezekiah gets a letter from the Assyrians that's not the nicest letter on the planet, and he takes it before God. He lays it out. He prays, and he finds peace and he finds tranquility, and he he finds that he's undisturbed of, of spirit in that. We should be undisturbed because we pray, because we have that connection to God. Prayer quiets our minds, quiets our hearts, it minimizes the drama, and it fills us with joy and appreciation for a quiet and peaceable life. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Where praying gets hard is where you got to pray for your enemies, people you don't like. Those are the people that need prayer the most, and the prayer list looks much the same. We should be praying for their general growth, that they would come to an understanding of who God is and grow closer to him, Uh, and we should be praying for specifics in their lives. Now, that looks a little bit different for the unbeliever because the specific in their life that we're praying for is for their heart to change. Ultimately, we don't change hearts. God does. We don't save people. God does. But we can still pray for that, and we should be praying for that on a regular basis. Now, the good news is, is when we give our lives to God, we don't have enemies anymore. Our enemies become his enemies, which means we don't have to worry about it. It's a lovely feeling. Now, this means that when we pray for our enemies, which we don't have anymore, so we're praying for people that we don't like. When you pray for people that you don't like, that's a little bit easier, maybe, hopefully. We are called to love those people, and we're called to to pray for them. And again, the thing that I'm not very good at, we should be thanking God for them in our lives, for the opportunity to to pray for them, for the opportunity to defend our faith, should we have that kind of friend in our life, and um, for for the opportunity to have someone someone that we can minister to, that we can help grow in some way. Uh, It is our duty and our responsibility before God to be praying for those people uh, and to be praying for them to, to, again, to come closer to God, to pray for those unbelievers in our life. God desires that all can be saved. That is what God wants for us as humanity. Um, That is his purpose and plan for us. Now, at the end of the day, we all have free will. We are all free moral agents. Sometimes that doesn't happen. That doesn't change God's desire that all people are saved. We don't save people. God does. What we do is we pray that God can work in their hearts. We pray for an opportunity for God to work in their hearts, for the soil of their heart to get soft, to be correctly plowed and treated so that when the gospel is planted, it can grow. That's our job. We pray that God does that work in their hearts. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom to all to be testified to be testified in due time, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle. I am speaking the truth in Christ and not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Okay. So backing up a little bit to verse 5 there. We don't pray alone. When we pray, we're not just praying directly to God and that's the end of it. Jesus steps in and he actually intercedes on our behalf. Jesus is praying for us. So when we go before God, Jesus goes with us. And he makes sure that what we say actually comes through in some kind of meaningful way. Which is good because... 
you know, sometimes like this morning, all that I managed to get out was, oh, God, help me. And Jesus says, okay, so here's what's going on here. Grant needs his mouth to work correctly, his vocal cords to work correctly. It'd be nice if his voice didn't break right in the middle of something important. That would be lovely. Jesus steps in and he prays for us. At the end of the day, God is an almighty, eternal being. We don't possess the mental, emotional, or spiritual capacity to talk to God. That's in our flesh. We're humans. We can't do that. Where Jesus comes in is that we need a mediator that understands what we're trying to say and then can also understand God, that speaks both languages, as it were. This requires a rather unique individual. It requires somebody who is human and who is also God. Jesus fits that role very, very nicely. Um, I like the image of him being our high priest, the person that, that goes between us and God, who stands in that gap. Um, in, uh, in Hebrews chapter 5, it says, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is the only person who can understand us fully, being human, and who can also go before God because he is also an eternal and all-powerful being. The only person who can stand before God would have to be God himself. It would have to be an equal. And the only person who can really understand humanity and get through my foggy little brain would be someone who is fully human. And Jesus fits both of those. Let's go back to that thing that I'm not very good at. Thank God that we have someone who can intercede on our behalf, somebody who does understand us, somebody who can stand in that gap. To have somebody who can so perfectly understand both parties in the relationship is something that is truly spectacular. Now we can take that a step further. We are to be Christ-like. We are to be pursuing and trying to learn how to become more like Jesus in everything that we do. Which means we should be interceding on behalf of the people in our lives both each other and also those unbelieving friends and family and people that we don't like because we don't have enemies anymore. And we're not, when we intercede for them, I should point out, we're not necessarily praying that their life becomes better. And that can be hard because if we've done our job correctly and we're loving people, it's hard to watch those people that maybe we still love and we should love go through hard times. And we need to understand that when we're praying for them, when we're praying something specific for them, we're not necessarily praying that their life gets easier, that their life gets better. We might actually be praying that God breaks them down to a point where they can hear and understand him. And that's hard. We're not praying for that better life for them. We're praying for their heart. At the end of the day, God's will will be done. It will be accomplished. When we pray doesn't guarantee that we'll get something that we want. Um, you know, if you pray for a fancy sports car, that's a, that's a fairly common one, right? Yeah, it doesn't guarantee that you're going to get that. What it does guarantee is that our hearts, through prayer, will become more aligned with God's will and more aligned with God's heart, what he wants. And as we work on that, as we pray, the goal should be that we continue to align ourselves closer to God's will. Now, when that happens, when we pray for God's will to occur, well, God is going to see his will done. So that means it will also happen. And that's kind of a fun feeling, too. You pray for something and it happens. That's always exciting. At the end of the day, we're accountable to God. God isn't accountable to us. We pray because it's acceptable to him and because he commands it. 
Moving on to the next verse here. I desire that all men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Now, it says men here, I desire therefore that the men pray everywhere. Men can be used specifically. Uh, when I looked it up in the Strong's Concordance, there are three ways that it is used to talk about men very specifically. Just generally a man, a married man, right? And then there's also one way that refers to all of humanity, all of us dust bunnies on the planet. All of us should be praying. I, I think that's a good interpretation here. It's not something that just men should do. It's not something that just women should do. It's not something that specific men should do. It's not something that just Pastor Sean should do, though we appreciate it when Pastor Sean does. It's something that all of us should be doing. Okay, so lifting up holy hands. There is not a proper position to pray in. Um, some people lift their hands, some people fold them, some people sand, stit, kneel. I've seen people full-on get down on the floor, put their face in the carpet, and you think, oh my gosh, I really hope I cleaned that recently. <laughs> when we see in uh, 2 Kings 19 that Hezekiah actually turns to face the wall. That's all fine. Whatever you want to do, whatever is comfortable for you, is perfectly acceptable. Whatever you do should be done modestly and with propriety, not drawing undue attention to yourself. The point of a posture of prayer is to not be distracted, both for you and for the people around you. This is why, you know, with kids we tell them, close your eyes, fold your hands. It's because you, you close your eyes because you don't want them looking around the room. Oh, hey, so-and-so's got their eyes open. What are they up to? And you have them fold their hands so they don't, you know, poke the person next to them, steal something out of the cookie jar, you know, that kind of thing. It's useful, then, to do something similar for yourself because then you're not distracted. Now, if you're not distracted by looking around or you, you know, sometimes if I'm, you know, my eyes are affected by some kind of allergen or something, closing my eyes may cause them to water and therefore I want to avoid that, so I'll stare at the floor or I'll look at the dog or I'll just generally make sure that the dog's not up to no good. Um, whatever you want to do is, is fine. Now, again, being modest, being proper in your prayers, in our society, in our culture, here in this fellowship, we don't generally get down on the floor, put our face to the carpet, and, and do all that. Uh, we don't prostrate ourselves very often. Uh, that would, of course, be then distracting on the flip side. You're distracting others by not perhaps making a show of prayer, but by doing something that's so far outside of the normal that it could then be distracting to other people. So knowing what your fellowship does and how they do that would be seeing things through with all propriety and making sure that you're doing things uh, in a right way. When we pray, we humble ourselves. The idea isn't to puff yourself up. The idea isn't to make yourself the center of attention. Uh, we don't pray before other people. We pray before God. So at the end of the day, we humble ourselves before God. So to that end, if you need to take a knee to make that happen, I get that. And you should feel free to do so. If you feel like you actually do need to lay down on the floor and put your face to the carpet, and that's something where you feel like you see people in the Bible do that and you need to do that, again, I would caution you against it because we don't want to distract our fellow believers from their prayers. But maybe find a corner when you're on your own. Absolutely. Go for it. Don't let yourself be distracted. All right. In like manner also, that the women adorn themselves with modest apparel, with propriety and moderation, not braiding their hair, uh, not braiding hair or gold, 
with pearls or costly clothing. <sighs> so I was preparing this passage this week. I texted my girlfriend and I told her, guess which passage I get to teach on? <clears throat> and then I said, you know, I have this suit of steel armor in my closet for the Renaissance Fair and I think I might put that on. She laughed at me. And then this morning she texted me and she says, praying for you, did you get your armor prepared? Oh boy, wish me luck. Pray for me. <laughs> All right. So in like manner also, um, this isn't necessarily just a passage for women. Guys, we can glean something from this too. Um, and I think that also this is a, a, a warning perhaps as to of, of what's to come in like manner. So let's get into this. You could believe that Paul here is specifically talking about women in a marriage relationship. That's how a lot of people get by stuff that comes later on in the passage. I don't read that necessarily. Um, you could. Just like uh, before where, where we looked at how men can be used as a specific term or to be everybody, this applies as well. At the end of the day, the context is what's important and what we need to look at. So what is the context for this book? If you look ahead at chapter 3, you'll see that um, Paul gets into church leadership with Timothy. So we are definitely talking about the church. So in that case, this becomes how to conduct ourselves, not just young ladies, but everyone, how we conduct ourselves in the church, specifically in the church. So I'm going to add something else here. Remember that this was written to a group of people during a specific time period dealing with specific issues. So men didn't have a lot of options for outfits. You'd maybe have two or three tunics total, and you'd wear one of them when you were doing something where you needed to look nice, and you'd wear the other one for work, and that was kind of it. Men didn't do a lot of jewelry, anything like that. Today, that's not the case. Men have a lot of different options, and you can absolutely dress for the purposes of vanity, just straight up making yourself look better. You can dress for prestige because you want to look like you're something else. Um, or you can even dress to be more provocative or tempting, which is a little weird, but you can. Um, that's more of an option for men today than it was back then. It really wasn't a thing back then. So let's dig into this. Verse 9. Women are to adorn themselves. I'm going to stop you right there. Because women are to adorn themselves. To adorn means to put in order, arrange, uh, to make ready, to prepare, to ornament, to adorn, to embellish with honor, to gain honor. Uh, we might say how you present yourself. The root word for that uh, in the Greek is kosmeo, which is, is the root word for cosmetic. So you, you could take it a step further and say that Paul is actually saying to wear makeup, to dress up nice. Um, as a guy, let's 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 put a nix on that. No, no makeup for you, Tom. I'm, I'm going to pick on Tom. It's, it's, I'm sorry. I'm going to pick on Brad, too. No makeup, Brad. <laughs> Women should present themselves with dignity and honor. Again, they should adorn themselves. You should be putting on, you know, makeup. You should be braiding your hair if that suits your fancy. You should be putting on your nice clothing. Why not? Remember, too, again, at this period and point in time, Paul is also combating the, um, the pagan practices of the Romans. 
Pagan priestesses often wandered around town not fully dressed. Temple prostitution was extremely common, and you would see that pretty much wherever you go. So Paul's also fighting that. You should adorn yourselves. Do, do put on something prior to coming to church. Um, the alternative, or the, the flip side to this, of course, is that clothing uh, was also seen as a status symbol. You wear the nicer clothing, you braid gold into your hair to show that you had wealth and that you had influence. When you present yourself in that manner, when you're showing off like that, you are, in a way, putting down the other people in your fellowship. You're saying that you're better than them. That's not good. We don't want that in the church. We are all brothers and sisters in Christ, no matter where we're at, no matter what kind of Gucci clothes we can buy. There's no status in the church. We're all sinners. We're all brothers and sisters. Again, the idea is not to be vain or to purposefully try to grab attention to yourself. Um, you don't need to be seen in that kind of way. Uh, you will be seen. Don't worry. God sees you, even if none of your fellow brothers or sisters do. I really liked what Pastor Chuck says about this. He says, There are fashions and styles that are designed to be sexually provocative. As a Christian woman, I do not believe that you should be wearing such styles. Jesus says, if a man looks upon a woman and desires her in his mind, he has committed adultery. That's Matthew uh, 5.28. And thus to wear a style of clothing that would so display your body as to create lust or desire, you're causing some man to sin. You don't want to do that. Now, I don't believe, this is still Chuck, you should go to the other extreme to wear apparel, you know, that immediately marks you as some kind of weirdo. I love Chuck. <laughs> I think that there are just a lot of modest, beautiful styles, and I don't think that this, is in, that this in any way should inhibit your shopping. You can plan, spend, months, uh, spend plenty of money on clothes that are not of the provocative nature. Now, two, two things with that. One, this isn't an argument saying that women are responsible for the lust of men. Women, you don't have to carry that burden. Men are told in other places in the Bible that we need to watch our eyes, that we need to be self-controlled in that area of our lives. It's not your fault. That said, you can do a few things to help us. You cannot intentionally invite that um, by the way that you've chosen to dress or to display yourself. Now, again, Paul is not saying that women can't dress up or that they shouldn't. He isn't saying that they can't do their hair or dye their hair or put gold in their hair. The question is how you do that. The heart is what matters here. Paul's not condemning the clothing that you wear. He's not condemning the gold in your hair. I know, I know that's a temptation for you, Brad. What Paul's condemning is the attitude, the putting yourself above others in your fellowship. That's not good. We shouldn't be doing that, and that goes for everyone. With propriety. The word means a sense of, honor, uh, of shame or honor, modesty, bashful, bashfulness, reverence, regard for others, respect. So we dress with honor. Um, that would be to dress in a way that suits you, yes, a way that, that helps you look better than you were, um, if you need help with that, I suppose, with regard for others in respect to what it can do to them. Uh, modesty. We should be careful of how we uh, affect other people. If the issue is with the heart and not with the clothes or with the accessories, then we need to be careful to be proper in what we do. Now, we are to dress up. The flip side of that would be to show up wearing your, you know, 
paint-covered cargo pants with holes in them and a T-shirt that you know not doesn't fit quite right, and your hair all a mess, and one side of it shaved off because you were you know got too close to a campfire or something. The goal is not to be disheveled or unkept. We are supposed to take care of ourselves to present ourselves again with honor. Take care of yourself. We're God's children. When we go to church, people notice that. People watch us. We are on display. No matter what you do, no matter how you dress, no matter how much gold you decide to put in your hair, you will be noticed. Uh, be aware of that. Don't, don't think that what you do and how, you're, how you choose to dress and how you choose to present yourself doesn't matter. At the end of the day, we do represent God to the people in our, in our lives and in our society and in our culture. Okay, so let's come back to the idea of modesty here for a second. Modesty refers to dressing um, with the intention of exposure to some degree, or to dress without the intention of exposure, I guess it would be. Again, there's nothing wrong with dressing to look nice, um, but dressing to tempt others is not a good thing. Again, this goes both ways. Um, for guys, you shouldn't be dressing to tempt the young ladies to sin. For ladies, you shouldn't be tempting the, the young men to sing. To, to sin. To sing. Yeah, if they sing, that's probably a good thing, I suppose. If a single woman's goal is to attract a guy, ladies, for those of you who are still single in the room, if you're looking to attract a guy, let your heart for God and your good works show off what kind of young lady you are. That'll attract the right kind of guy. Give it some time. All right, moving on to moderation. Paul says we should be adorning ourselves with moderation. That's to be in control. I would say this goes further than just the way you look. This also goes to the way that we act. Don't let your emotions drive you to do things that aren't who you are or who God made you to be. A lot of people can make very emotional decisions, and that can hurt them. And when it comes to the way that you dress, of course, again, there's nothing wrong with gold or pearls. There's nothing wrong with wearing new clothes or nice clothes. The idea is with the heart. Don't let, don't let your emotions get the best of you. Don't say, wow, I really want to be all I can be and look the absolute best that I can be and then go way overboard with that. On the flip side, don't give up completely and say, well, you know, Paul says that I can't have nice clothes and therefore I, I will wear the rattiest, oldest, most nasty looking thing I have in my wardrobe. We're God's children. We should be representing each other, but also representing our God um, to the best of our abilities and, and to be a blessing to those around us. In like manner, also, that the women. So this is, uh, this is going back to, um, oh goodness, was it verse 8? Yep. Where it says that all men are to pray, right? Thank you, Sam. How you pray matters, right? So in the same way, we're, we're looking here at how you dress. Prayer is, in like manner, something similar, right? We shouldn't be flashy or overbearing in our prayers. Um, perhaps it's better not to be. But it's important to also remember that we do need to be praying. Praying in front of others is something that does take practice. Um, it does for me. Um, I'm blessed in that we have the, uh, the prayer time, the small group prayer time after uh, evening study. And that's a good chance to, to practice and learn how to do that. Um, you know, there, there are plenty of weeks for me where I have absolutely not wanted to pray. I would way rather have just sat quietly and minded my own business and listened to the prayers of the other saints around me. We're all to be praying. And we're all to be praying, praying in like manner, 
um, with modesty, with propriety, and with moderation. Verse 11. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. This is where I started joking about wearing armor today. <sighs> okay. Remember, this is to a Roman audience. This is to a time period that is very far before what we've done. Uh, 2,000-some years, give or take. Women were not allowed to learn in the ancient world. It was very, very rare. So what Paul is saying here, he's telling, in verse 11, right, it says, let a woman learn. We're going to stop right there. Paul is encouraging women to learn. For people who like women's rights and women's freedoms, this is the first of that. Kind of of its kind to some degree. Um, the Bible is kind of has a lot of that throughout it, but Paul is encouraging women to learn. So take a moment, soak that in, and appreciate what's going on there. Now, what Paul is critiquing is the disrupting of the teaching of the word. When you don't know how to learn, when you don't, when you're not familiar with a certain cultural context, you can miss cues. Again, going back to prayer, right? I'm guessing that some of you have seen some pretty goofy prayers. You ever heard a prayer in like spoken in King James? Oh Lord, thou art the most holy. Yeah, it's cool. It's also very distracting. When you don't know the context of what you're walking into, it can lead you to make mistakes. To my understanding, this is kind of what happened in the early church. Women would often ask their questions right in the middle of the teaching. And that would distract from the teaching. It would make it harder to focus. Um, it would tear the focus away from the teacher and from God's word and put it on whatever question was posed, right? This, again, this just comes from a lack of knowledge of just knowing how a teaching is supposed to proceed. So that would have probably been quite a moment. Um, so a couple things that we can take away from that is that we need to not be disrupting the teaching of the word when it's going on, right? We don't want to be drawing others away from that teaching. Even if it's a really good question, we don't want to be distracting other people. We want them to be focused. We want them to keep their train of thought running smoothly so that they can develop their own thoughts around the teaching as well. Again, we're blessed in that after the, the teaching, we have time to talk about it and time to discuss. That's the proper place to ask those questions. Um, honestly, I, I think that you know, it, it says here, you know, let a woman learn in silence with all submission. Again, I don't think that Paul would say this about women today. I think you'd much more likely say it about teenagers or our dog, right? So, again, verse 11, with all submission. Oh, boy, Paul. <laughs> in the context of modesty, submission can be seen as women submitting to their husbands, perhaps, right? As, as loving their husbands. Don't attract another guy's attention when you're married. Don't attract another guy's attention, perhaps even when you're dating, right? Submit to their authority. Submit to um, covering yourself more, perhaps, to reserve yourself for them. Again, written to an older audience, submission was not necessarily a bad thing. It was seen as a virtue, even. That's something that's changed today. Um, secularism and humanism uh, have demonized the idea of submission. Not godly submission, but all submission. Uh, and there are, there are, of course, both types. We need to submit ourselves to God. To submit ourselves to God is to be in service to him, right? 
and it's to be in service to each other. Um, we're, we're actually told to get addicted to it. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 16, 15 through 16, I should have made this text a lot darker. I beseech you, brethren, ye know the house of Stephanus, that is the first fruits of Acacia, and that they have addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints. Verse 16, that ye submit yourselves unto such, and every one that helpeth with us and laboreth. We are to submit ourselves to the ministry of the saints. We're to become addicted to that. Now, I brought up marriage, so I'll say that this practice is something that you can start in the home. It's something you can start with your spouse, right? For women, this is not a command to submit to all men. That's, that's just ridiculous. That's not what Paul's talking about here. This is talking about their husband, not men as a whole. Now, in the church, we should all be submissive to the leadership in our church. If Pastor Sean has something he wants to say to you, you should listen. Now, you don't necessarily have to listen to me because I don't qualify as church leadership, I don't think. But, you know, you could. I, I, I wouldn't say no. Leadership often sees the impact of an individual behavior and how that affects the group as a whole. So when a teacher tells you something, we should submit ourselves to that teaching, to that instruction, on the faith and understanding that that teacher wants what's best for us. They're trying to help us grow. Now, this doesn't mean that you shouldn't be on the lookout for false teachers, right? That you should submit yourself blindly. In fact, in, in chapter 1, Paul, Paul tells us that we should be on the lookout for that, that we should call it out, that we should pray for it. But that's part of our service and part of our submission to our leadership. We love them. We need to keep them accountable. We need to admonish them when they cross the line. And the way we do that is by prayer. That's the only thing we can do about that and against that. All right, verse 12. And I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, but to be in silence. Paul tells Titus that women are to teach each other. Older women teach younger women. Now, in the context of, of modesty or submitting and, and serving each other, uh, we'll, we'll bounce back here to, to men. Probably best for men to stay out of a few different things. Fashion discussions, probably not our area of expertise. Probably not best for us to discuss how a woman should be submitting to a man. Not really our place. That's something that older women should be teaching younger women. It's best from young people to learn from older, wiser folks so that we're not just the blind leading the blind. Uh, if Sam comes to me and asks me about advice in his life, I'm happy to give that to him, but I'm also probably not the right person to give that to him because I haven't lived as long as he has. I haven't been as far down the road as he has. Going to someone who is wiser than me would be beneficial to him. Some topics it's okay to divide yourself by gender on. Topics in this chapter are a good place to start with that. There are some things I don't have any say over a woman's life in. I'm not going to pretend to know how to explain that or do that or be a part of that. I'm sure there's some flip side examples too. Just be aware of them. It's not necessarily an all-bad thing here and there. Okay, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. Teaching over a man in the church is not okay for a woman to do. A lot of people don't like this message. It's a hard one for them. A lot of people ignore it. They try to work around it. 
they go back to that uh, that passage where it, it says, uh, in like manner, let women do this, that, and the other thing, and they say, well, this is specifically referring to marriage. See, this is only in the marriage context. Mm, no, no, in the, in the context of the whole chapter, as we looked at, this is referring to the church. We're going to back up again to the first century, and we're going to look at what the Romans did, because part of this, too, is Paul speaking against a, a Romanized world. In the Roman world, um, paganism, as it were, was, was, was dominated by female leadership, by priestesses, right? Going back to the idea of temple prostitution, right? So a male-led church, a male-led Christian church would have stood out very distinctly. So the culture was saturated by women in leadership. Now, Paul makes a point of saying he doesn't want a woman teaching over a man. Does that apply today? Does God care how that works out today? There are some things in life where as the guest preacher, I'm just not going to get into. There are some things you can ask your pastor about, and I am okay with that. How about that? Sometimes we read something in the Bible that we don't like, that we want to ignore, that we want to skim over, that we want to look past, that we want to tell you to just go ask your pastor about. In the context of submitting, if we are to submit to each other, if we're to submit to our leadership, if we're to be submitting to God, if we're to be serving Him, there are times where God may tell us something. He may tell it to us through His Word, and we may not like it. We don't have to like it, but we do have to do it. We have to see it through. We have to trust that God knows what's better for us than we do. Now we're going to go into verse 13. Paul gives what's perhaps one of the weirdest reasons for why women can't teach in the church. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Okay, Paul. So there's a couple things we can get out of this, right? There is a hierarchy that God put in order. God made men first. That is the order that we're to hold to, especially in the church. God chose man to lead. This has nothing to do with equality. It, it's more just the compliment that men and women are to each other. At the end of the day, God chose men to lead. Perhaps this means that in the flesh, men are actually less likely to want to lead, that they would rather put that responsibility off. And so God's calling us out, right? He's calling us men out. and He says, no, 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 you have to lead. I want you to. That's who I chose to do so. And this could mean that in the flesh, Maybe women are less modest about that. Maybe they recognize that they've got some strengths, especially in the leadership department, and they would want to step up and take that role. Now, there's lots of things that women are definitely and distinctly better at than men. Um, I'll happily say that. So let's look at a couple of those things. We'll, we'll get into kind of how men and women complement each other. So we're going to go all the way back to the beginning, right? And I'm going to do a little quiz here. Who can tell me what part of the body Eve came from? Side. Side, thank you. I was, I was wondering if I was going to have to, like, well, ribs are a bone, what part of the body does it? Yes, a rib, yes, but the rib comes from the side. Thank you, Brad. Eve came from Adam's side. She wasn't made from his foot, that she's under him. She wasn't made from his head. She's not over him. She came from his side. Men and women are meant to go together. They're meant to be two equal parts of a coin. <clears throat> of a coin. Let me make sure that I can get my vocal cords to work correctly. 
men and women are meant to complement each other, to, to fit together, right? Sin loves to get in there and corrupt that fit. In the flesh, yeah, maybe men do want to give up the leadership role, and yeah, maybe there's a lot of women that would like to take that over. We know that in heaven, men are not men and women are not given to each other in marriage. That's Mark 12, 25, for those of you who are interested. So to some degree, what rules you have in your marriage are kind of irrelevant, right? Who does what is maybe irrelevant. But men and women were created by God to complement each other. So what one is weaker in, the other should be stronger in. That's the way we're built. That's the way we're designed. We are not built to be isolated. We're not built to be alone. Uh, maybe some of us are. And Paul says that he wishes all of us were as he was, right? Single and unafraid. And others of us, I think most of us, we're built to be a pair. We're built to be together. We're built to complement. The Bible does establish two genders. In our modern society, it has to be said, God defined those two roles for us, and they are different. The Bible assumes different physical, emotional, and spiritual instructions for men and women. It assumes that we are a little different. So why is this such a sticking point today for us? It's because maybe men struggle to sacrifice for others. Maybe it's because women struggle to submit themselves to even one man in their life. The world has men embracing the idea that sex is free and it doesn't have responsibility. And that's not a positive thing in our society. The world has women embracing selfishness. Whatever I want, I'm going to go seek it, pursue it, and get it. So we need to ask, when have we ever seen the world get anything right? Would it not be better to trust what God has designed and what God has planned? Even if that's the harder thing to do, who do you trust? Do you trust the world? Do you trust whatever your favorite talk show host is, your, your favorite Oprah Winfrey or whatever, whatever talk show host you like best? Or do you trust God Almighty? Do you trust that he had a plan? Do you trust that we are made in his image? Now, as the church, we are accountable to God, right? So we shouldn't be looking to pop culture for how to navigate our lives. We should be looking for, for God, to, to God. He has a plan for us. He has a purpose. Sacrificial love for each other is an image of what God did for us on the cross. Marriage is an image of what it will look like to be with God in the future kingdom and in, in, in what is to come. So let's look, let's look at marriage a little bit. In a marriage, the man is responsible as head of the house before God. At the end of the day, if you get married, you are responsible for your wife before God. You have to give an account for how you shepherded her, how you husbanded her throughout your life and throughout her life. Now, there are a few differences here and there between men and women, right? Men are physically stronger, but women can block off pain better than guys. Now, I, I will admit, I was thinking about this, and I was like, yeah, I don't know about that. I, I, I would guess that it's kind of the same. And then I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. Women do that whole childbearing thing. Then they get done, and a couple years later, they say, oh, yeah, I think I'd like to do that again. So don't, don't, you, don't you doubt that. Women can block off pain better than men can. We have bodies that God made for us with a command to use them to work. The idea is not that we break ourselves for other people. 
this should be reflected in the church. As a man, when you get married, you need to be willing to die for your wife, just like Christ died for us. Marriage is an example of what the church looks like and what the church looks like for God. So if that sacrifice is ever asked of you, men, be prepared for that. And women, knowing that your, your husband should be willing to die for you, do your best to submit to serve him. Be nice to him, just in case that sacrifice is ever asked. In 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four, Jesus says, uh, or, well, the passage says, And when he had given thanks, he broke it, the bread, and said, Take it and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Men, don't ignore the sacrifice and service that we're called to. We are called to sacrificial love. We may not always feel that love. Love is not necessarily an emotion. It is a choice. It is something that you choose to do every day. When you give your service, when you submit yourself, when you're submitting yourself to the church, when you're submitting yourself to your spouse, you do that with no expectation of reward. You give up that time. You give up your life. Do so without expectation of getting something back. That is sacrificial love. Okay, so going back to authority in the church, right? Just because women are not to teach over men does not have does not mean that they don't have a role or a say-so in how things are done. There are a lot of things that many women are better at than men, uh, and they can do much of those things in the church. Um, I look at all the things that my girlfriend or that Danny does in a single day, and I'm continually amazed by the level of organizational prowess and expertise that that takes. A skill that I have, I could develop if I wanted to, I suppose, but I am never going to get as efficient as either of those two young ladies in our fellowship. I will never be truly efficient in that. But authority specifically is singled out as something that has not been given to women. So, yes, organizing an event, absolutely. Teaching on a Sunday morning, again, talk to Pastor Sean. That's how we're going to handle that one. Yes, sir -y. Now, remember, we can look back at the Old Testament, too. We see that this was kind of the same thing with Levites. They were only men, only of-age men, uh, and able-bodied men. Remember that this is for in the church. Out in your workplace, this doesn't necessarily apply. If you have a woman as your boss, that's not a fight that you need to go take on. Nope, I do not respect your authority because you're a woman. You shouldn't have authority. But no, no, no. You should respect your boss. You should pray for your boss. You should pray that they have a heart that seeks after God that they make good decisions for your workplace, right? Now, verse 14. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. There we go. There's my vocal cords breaking down for the day. One of the things that I think women are better at and that I see them being better at a lot of times than men uh, is in the area of being sensitive to the spirit. It's one of the same things that women just seem to be really good at on average this would be an area of leadership for them that is naturally kept in check when it is talked about and when it needs to be run by church leadership, like your pastor or your husband. Women are often more tuned in to how the Spirit moves, um, or at least that's definitely what this verse implies. You know, I, I see my own father turn to mom a lot of times on spiritual issues, and he'll say, do you feel the Spirit moving on that? How, how, do, you, how do you think that's, that's going to play out? 
if I try this. In a good fit, in a good marriage, in a good church body, men or leadership in the church recognize that wisdom, recognize that unique ability, and they draw out the wisdom. They use it. Paul points out creation. He points out how God originally built it to point out that it's always been this way, right? We've always had this kind of relationship. That is how God designed it. The idea of authority in the church, authority um, in the priesthood is, is not something that's new. Again, Roman, the Roman world had female leadership all throughout it, especially in its temple worship. This isn't a new thing. Um, it hasn't been a new thing in our lifetimes. It's not going to be a new thing in our grandkids' lifetimes. It's been something that's been debated for a long time. Try to think about how sick of that, how sick of that God probably is at this point. He's like, humans, when will they figure this stuff out? Women are more easily tuned in to the things of the Spirit. That means that this is the spot where Satan will attack them. Straight up. Now, women being able to feel when the Holy Spirit moves, being really tied into the spiritual world, is a super good thing. Because when the Holy Spirit moves, they feel it. They see it. They see it a lot quicker than men do. And it's a huge blessing to the people around them, to the church leadership, to their husband. It's a negative thing if the woman loses sight of the Holy Spirit in their life. That opens, up the, that opens them up to temptation and to being led astray by other spirits in this world. We are not alone in this world. Um, we are not alone in the spiritual world. The good forces in, in the spiritual world and the bad forces in the spiritual world are in conflict. There is a war. Believe it or not, we are soldiers in that war. So that can be an encouraging thought for you or a terrifying thought for you. I'm going to let that go to your imagination. Now, I know that in my life, I lose sight of the Holy Spirit a lot. Again, it's something I'm not as sensitive to as, say, my mom, my sister, my girlfriend. So a lot of times, I don't feel the presence of God in my life. I don't feel his direction on my life. I have to kind of make it up as I go or try to sort out how I want to handle that. I have to wrestle with that. The way I do that is I turn to prayer. And a lot of times, I... I'll pray and I'll say, God, I don't feel you on this one. I don't know what you want me to do. I'm going to do this. And if I'm wrong in that, I need you to stop me. Because I'm apparently too thick-headed to see what you want me to see. Now, I'm not just going with whatever seems best to me, right? I am trying to make the best decision that I can with the information that God has given me be a lot easier if I was a little more in tune to the spiritual world. Like a lot of young women are. This is, however, how Eve was deceived. When the devil came to Eve in the garden, he came in disguise, he disguised himself as a serpent, and he tricked Eve. The devil is a spirit, so he can create not the same motion as the Holy Spirit, right? Nothing can do that. But he was able to create a movement in the spiritual world that Eve picked up on. And by that, she was led astray. She was deceived. Now, Adam just straight up sinned. He knew better than to do what he did, and he did it anyway, and that is called sin. Eve was deceived. Now, <coughs> men in the church can forget the joy of the Spirit. They can lose track of the Holy Spirit. Watching and keeping track of the Holy Spirit in our lives 
making sure that we're tuned into it is essential to our lives as believers. Now, as men, we're blessed. We have women in our lives. Now, you may be thinking, oh, no, I'm single. I don't have any women in my lives. I beg to differ, sir. Look around you. You are surrounded by people that can help you. Not only the women, but the men too, those who, who are able to see the Holy Spirit, who are more practiced at observing it and following it through their lives. You're not alone. Let's move on to verse 15. Nevertheless, she, the woman, will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. Okay, so I've got two thoughts around this, around this, and I heard two kind of prevailing thoughts when I went through and did research for this. Um, first off, a little reminder. Pain in childbirth is the cur- curse that Eve received for being deceived, for letting herself be deceived, for losing, losing track of the Holy Spirit. So this could very well be read as a general rule of thumb that in childbearing, Women shall be saved from death, presumably. Especially in the ancient world, that was very common. Um, even with modern medicine today, it still happens from time to time that women pass in childbirth. That is part of the curse that we've received as humanity. That's part of the curse that women received um, back in the beginning. So this verse could be read as just straight up, women won't die in childbirth as often. That she will be saved in that process, I think that's fine. That's a fine reading of this verse. I think it could be an encouragement, right? For anybody who's thinking about having children in the near future, that God will preserve your wife through that. That you won't, that women, that you won't have to um, die to to bring another life into the world. Now the second view or or thought on this uh, requires looking at the root words and I think you, you kind of got to have the eyes to see it. And if you don't, I'm not going to blame you. I, it might be a little out there, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. Uh, one of the pastors that I listened to on this um, had this idea, and I looked into it as best I could. But uh, said the, the pastor no, noted that woman and childbirth or childbearing are in the singular in the Greek. So it is, nevertheless, the woman will be saved in the childbirth. So, I looked into the root words. Again, if you have the eyes to see it, it is there. It does say, nevertheless, woman, singular, will be saved in childbearing or raising a child. So, to that end, we could look at this as being, the woman will be saved in the childbirth. That would be by bringing the Messiah into the world. Men don't get that privilege. Women do. Women did. Woman did. Singular. So when Jesus came into the world, he, was, he came in through a woman. He came in through that process that was cursed, childbirth, childbearing. So you could look at this as that being the salvation of the woman or the salvation of this particular process, the redemption of that particular error. I like this, personally. I think it's um, romantic, if that's the right word. So I like it, but if you don't see it, again, I wouldn't recommend you stake your, stake your faith on it. I would be very curious to find out what people think afterward when we get to the discussion part of our teaching because I think that's a really interesting way to read that at the very least. Okay, so here's the thing. 
that we should probably pay some attention to as well. We have a list here of things that women are to do. And I think that I'm going to perk the ears of the guys back up in the room. We should be doing this too, guys. If they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. That's what we should be doing. We should have our faith in God. We should be loving each other. We should be holy. We should be proper. We should be self-controlled, modest, doing things in moderation. And that goes for our prayer life, how we pray when we're with other people. That goes for the way that we dress, the way that we act when we're in the church. It goes for when we interact with church leadership. Most of us are under church leadership. Very few of us are actually church leaders. So by and large, we all need to be submitting ourselves to that leadership. I do too, because again, I don't necessarily qualify as church leadership. I'm a guest. This is what God intended. This is what God planned. This is a list of what we should focus on. I think this is good. I think this is just. I think this is honorable. I hope you do too. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, thank you for this passage. Thank you that nothing got thrown at me while I taught it. Thank you that uh, we can gather together and study your word in freedom, uh, that our politicians have kept that available for us, that we do not have laws prohibiting us from gathering. Thank you for your justice, Father. Thank you that when we come together, we do so with intention, that we do so to honor you, that we do so to minister with each other. Father, help us to addict ourselves to the ministry of our brethren, Father, that we can addict ourselves to prayer, that we can addict ourselves to modesty, to propriety, Father. Help us to do everything we do in moderation. Be with us this day. Be with us this week as we go forward. Bless us. Help us to see the opportunities that we have in our lives to, to pray, not only for those around us, Father, but um, also for those that uh, maybe aren't as, as close around us, for those in, in leadership in our country and around the world, Father. Be with us. Guide us. Lead us. In Jesus' name I pray. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.